junior points there. So I got it on there. Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Um, it is. I do always enjoy um, being here. I, my kids are well represented through this, uh, through Rooted. I love Pastor Scott. I love this ministry. I love the way that the, the Word of God is so central in it. And so it is, uh, it is a treat for me to get to come and to teach it to you. So uh, before we start, maybe join me in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for Sunday, for a day of worship to come to your house, to be with your people. We're grateful that you have created us to be uh, in community, to be a people who, who don't serve you in isolation, but who serve out our lives and our days with a community of people around us, a community of people who love the Lord. So I pray that you speak to us this morning. I know each of us come today with different cares, different concerns, probably different levels of sleep last night. Speak to our hearts. It's a word uh, from the Bible, whether it's something I say, whatever it is, I pray that there be something each of us would leave with uh, that would take us out into this next week, uh, make us a people who are more reflective of your love, uh, of your mercy, uh, of your care for this world. So we look forward to what you'll teach us here this morning. Uh, we thank you in advance, knowing that you are God who always keeps your promises. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, I, I was looking, working on this here uh, through the last week. Uh, I do want to say before we start, I love Pastor Scott's formulation that you've been using for the, the definition of, of wisdom. I can't, are you supposed to be memorizing it? Is that, so does anybody know what it is? Worshiping God by rightly applying his truth to real life situations. I know you knew it. That's okay. I know. I know you want to say it. So. <clears throat> That's great. I really love that because sometimes uh, Proverbs doesn't necessarily have a narrative format. As you're moving through the Old Testament, a lot of those Old Testament books follow kind of a narrative um, format. And Proverbs isn't really like that, so it can feel like it's all over the place. But that really is what it comes down to teaching us how to apply the, the wisdom of God to, to our lives in a way that, that brings glory to him. Now, another thing I didn't see, uh, so I was in first this morning, and I noticed that a lot of you were, which that's okay. Um, when you get into second service, you're going to notice that some of the things that I talk about are going to at least rhyme with what Scott was talking about today. Um, it's always fascinating to me. I, I didn't I maybe should have known, but I didn't know where Scott was going to be today. But there, is, there are some remarkable similarities between uh, the message that he had out of, of Joshua 7 and what we're going to talk about uh, out of Proverbs 6. So I love to see those kind of, it actually happens not that infrequently that God puts those sort of things together uh, through a church service in something that he and I didn't necessarily plan. So I think let's uh, stand up. If you would, with me for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read our, our section today. It's in Proverbs 6. We're going to start at verse 12. Read down to the middle. Proverbs 6, 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. 
With perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of God. You can sit down. So, last week, as you will certainly remember, Pastor Scott took you through the first part of this chapter where there were some practical discussions about work and diligence, how God values those things. So we're going to move uh, into another section that's a further evaluation of say character um, from God's perspective. So start right there in 12. Um, this. this wicked or worthless man uh, is of no value to the kingdom of God. So we start out here with uh, a, a pretty brutal assessment of character. If someone said this about you, um, it would be hard to find a silver lining in it. There's, there's not much good here. I'm going to read this, just this first section of verses from a different version of the Bible because I think it brings out what Solomon is trying to describe here. So again, this is, this is verses 12 to 15, uh, just from a different version of the Bible. And it reads, Swindlers and scoundrels talk out of both sides of their mouths. They wink at each other. They shuffle their feet. They cross their fingers behind their backs. Their perverse minds are always cooking up something nasty, always stirring up trouble. Catastrophe is just around the corner for them, a total wreck. Their lives ruined beyond repair. I think that's really interesting. That was, if it matters to you, the secondary title to this is always cooking up something nasty, which I, I found amusing when I read it. But, but this first part where it talks about this, this worthless person, a wicked man, the, the root of it is a Hebrew, it's two Hebrew words. They come together to the word Belial, B-E-L-I-A-L is the way you see it rendered in, uh, in the Bible. And if you are a student of the Bible, you've seen it in some other places. Uh, it, it, it literally means without profit. So it's a person that is without so here's some of the ways that, that diff different Bible versions translate that name. Swindler, scoundrel, worthless person, wayward person, evil troublemaker, villain, sinful man, man of iniquity, naughty person. This same word was even used. You remember the, the story of uh, Eli's sons back in 1 Samuel? Uh, he had a couple of sons who were priests. And they despised the priesthood. They, they treated it with, with shame and eventually paid for that with their lives. Right? So these are men, this is describing men, who care nothing at all about God or what he wants. These are people who've decided to chase their own desires, to chase what they want in life. Just as I was looking at it, it reminded me of the verse back in, uh, Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood, you may remember, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. So these are men that are given over to what they want, who care nothing about what God wants. Move to this next section of verses here. It's going to give us some, again, I read that, you know, always cooking up something nasty. It's giving us this, uh, this sense of um, just how, how committed they are to doing evil. This next section is going to talk about, uh, it's going to use some physical examples to talk about, again, how given over they are to, to doing wickedness. So this first part uh, goes about with crooked speech. You know, other versions it says a corrupt or perverse mouth. It's pretty easy for us to, to figure out people whose, whose speech does not reflect love, does not reflect what God wants. The next section is a little more uh, obtuse. This is an interesting one where it talks about winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and points with his finger. So a couple of commentaries that I read when I was studying this. Sometimes to understand the Bible, we have to transport ourselves back back in time and remember the, the time in which it was written. You certainly would remember there's no, at this point, as Proverbs is being written, there's no Zoom calls, there's no iPhones, there's no, right? So almost all of your communication in business and in your dealings from day to day is face to face with somebody. There, there's not another, there's not an option to send them an email. I think there was, I'm sure there were ways to translate messages, but most of in the marketplaces of the day, the way you interacted with people was with them, was standing there face to face. And a couple of the commentaries that I read said that this, this reference here, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, is talking about something that was common in the East that uh, when someone was trying to, to scheme to take advantage of somebody or commit fraud to somebody, and if they had other, other players in that scheme, again, they had to have them close so they could see what was happening. They couldn't participate any other way. And while they were talking to the, the mark, so to speak, that they would use these, uh, this body language of pointing and shuffling with their feet to communicate to their co-conspirators in the takedown, so to speak, of the, the person who is being taken advantage of. I thought that was really interesting, right? We would recognize this in our day more like a, you know, a poorly worded email from a Nigerian prince you know, who needs money to get his mom out of jail or something like that, right? That's the kind of scams that we're used to receiving. You never met that guy. He's probably in Russia somewhere, right? But he's able to get that message to you. Where in this case, it has to happen Right? You're going to defraud someone of something, you have to do it right in front of them. So, again, talking about this kind of man, a man overtaken by, overtaken by wickedness. And then we move to the next section. The reason for all of it we find in verse 14 is man's perverted heart. It seems to always come back to that, doesn't it? Reminds me of the verse in... Jeremiah 17, that says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Um, steal a little bit of Scott's thunder from today. Uh, but that's one of the points that he's going to make is that the things that happen in the wicked man, 
They don't start as the things that happen. They start as the things that occur in the heart. It, it starts with the way uh, that we deal with God, that we deal with the truth of who he is. Those are the things that eventually turn into the, the wicked actions that we're, that we're seeing here. So I think in a, it's, it's especially relevant as we think about this, right? We're, we're kind of heavy. We're talking about wickedness and people consumed with wickedness. And you think, well, what does this have to do with me? I'm not that bad. Um, and I'm glad you're not, right? I'm glad that this isn't a description of who you are. Kind of the, the first piece of it that I want to point out is, is in a culture that right now wants to constantly tell you that most people are really good. There's a few really bad ones, probably Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein and whatever, I can't even think of somebody who did a bad thing last week. But there's a few people, right? The ones in the news and those people are really bad. But, but really everybody else, right? We're pretty good. We're not as bad as them. And the fact is God's word simply disagrees. It just simply disagrees with that worldview. And that doesn't mean that every person that we've ever met is as bad as they could possibly be. They're not. We know that's true. We know that there are people, even people who are not Christians, who seem to be good people, who do some good things. But this, the fact that the worldview that says that the road, the worldview that says that this world is on some kind of road to moral perfection, that we just keep getting better and better, and we keep getting, it's frankly refuted by looking at the news. I don't recommend that you look at the news or spend lots of time because it's really depressing, frankly, what you see is that in almost every circumstance, even people who are given responsibility, even the people who we would look at and think, oh no, that's a guy you can really look up to so often, and not all of them, but so often, uh, we find them taken down by, taken down by sin. Another line I thought of as I was moving through this, there's a writer from the early 1900s that I really enjoyed, his name is G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote, I have to listen to this, because it's, it's kind of a, it's an old English way of writing. It's surprising that people have rejected the doctrine of original sin because it's really the only doctrine that can be empirically verified. Right? So he's talking about, uh, of all of the things in the world, um, lots of people say, well, the Bible's not true, or you know, like Christianity because Christians aren't very good people, and but, but he says, it's interesting that people would go about to try to say that really the people are good on the inside. They're really good people when all you have to do is look around in the world and in almost every situation, people without Christ, when given the option to choose good or choose evil, if they think they can get away with it, they very, very often choose evil. So that's, that's our setup um, now for... Verse 15, well, what does this mean if, if this wicked person is, is tilted toward evil? Reward for this kind of life is permanent and final judgment. So the future for this man who continually sows discord will find sudden calamity. 
So I studied this verse and, and was reading some, some other men's thoughts about it. Right? I think we have to conclude that this description is, ta- is, ta- is speaking about it from God's perspective. It's speaking about what's going to happen in God's timing. Because I think we can all think of times when men and women that we would say should have, should have received judgment here, should have received sudden calamity, didn't. The stories of Nazi prison guards who died peacefully in their sleep, you'd think, man, if anybody deserved sudden calamity, it was that guy. And he didn't get it, right? He just died peacefully of old age. Other ones, rich business businessmen who accumulate wealth unjustly. There's violent men who manage to avoid the law. Uh, there's even a, a psalm, uh, Psalm 73, is kind of a lament that talks about uh, basically God. Why do why do the unrighteous seem to do so well in life? It seems like it seems like their gardens grow and their kids are healthy and 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 we know that they're doing things are wrong. Why does this happen? as we take the whole counsel of the Bible, especially Jesus' words in the, in the New Testament, it's very clear that the wicked, people whose lives are, are established in wickedness, will spend eternity separated from God. So we can be discouraged by a world that seems plagued with injustice, with people getting away with things. God reassures us here, right, that he is, that the unrepentant scoundrel as it's called, will find permanent and final justice um, for his actions. So now we're going to move into this next section, which is kind of a restatement of, of what we just talked about a little bit. And I want to talk about verse 16 just for a, for a minute before we move on. And, right? Does it seem, it seems kind of heavy, right? We're talking about wicked people. Y'all can think about that, about things that seem unfair, things that, again, wicked people seem to get away with. And, and yeah, God's going to take care of it, but then now we're talking about hell, and we just got done talking about sudden calamity beyond healing. And now we move into verse 16, and we're going to talk about six things the Lord hates. Right? Didn't our mom tell us not to hate things? Are we not supposed to hate And, and the reason we have to talk about this is because it goes, uh, and again, credit to Scott's going to talk about this in the message this morning. It goes to the very, the very root of the gospel. The fact that there are things that God hates. And he hates them in the real way of hating things. This isn't some sort of, well, he hates it in a figurative way that's not the same as, no. Now, this is real. This is, this is fiery hatred. God hates these sins. The God, who, the God who reveals himself to us in this Bible is utterly perfect. He is entirely without sin. He created a world that was utterly perfect, that was entirely without sin, a world that gave him the glory that he was properly due. He's good, 
We say God is good, and, and he's good by nature. The fact is that God, that who God is defines what good is to us. When, when we try to figure out what is good, the Bible says we look to see who God is, and that's how we know what good is. It's definitional, that the nature of God makes us understand um, what goodness is. And so this means that, that any imperfection, any sin in mankind is in direct opposition to who he is. He hates sin because he is perfect. He's offended by it because he is just. And because he's perfect, his perfect justice requires him to judge it. Right? We've heard that about, about judgment and we all agree with it when it deals with somebody else, but if, if a judge was to look at someone who had just broken the law and say, eh, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. Maybe I'll let you go. Particularly if you were the person wronged, you'd say, that's not justice. That's not fair at all. And God is perfectly just. And so this sin, these sins we're going to talk about, He, he has to judge them. Right? And so this is all of us. I don't know if this is starting to sink in here a little bit, right? At first we're talking about wicked, like wicked people, really bad people, scoundrels and swindlers and naughty people. Like, well, that's not us, right? That's all the, that's all the bad people I've ever thought about. But all of a sudden, if we're talking about the perfection of God and that he hates imperfection, Makes you start to squirm a little bit because I, you can ask my kids, am not perfect. I'm not a perfect person. Does God hate? Does God hate me? Does he hate what I do? Places us all in a position of, de of deserving already. Before anything happens this afternoon, right? We deserve permanent separation from God. God is an infinite being. We experience time as finite, but our souls are infinite. Right? And so at this point, God is infinitely perfect. Having been imperfect at one point, we are now infinitely imperfect. Right? We've placed, we have placed ourselves in the place of deserving permanent judgment from an eternally perfect God. And this my friends, is why we call the gospel the good news. If it didn't matter, if it really was irrelevant to your life and God was going to look at people and say, eh, he's better than that guy over there. Why would the gospel matter? Why would it matter at all? Oh, no, no. The fact is that God hates sin and he hates it in us. And so the fact that his offer of salvation by grace through faith to use the righteousness of Christ to pay the penalty for our sins, this is good news. This is really, really, really good news. But it's only good if you understand the infinite badness of the state that we find ourselves in. So again, I, part of the reason that I bring it up is, right, we live in a culture that's trying desperately to convince you otherwise. 
that, you know, hate, hate is bad. Well, we don't know hate is bad. So God, God must not actually hate anything because, you know, we don't like people who hate and then we wouldn't like God. You know, the God we worship is one that just loves people and he just accepts people and he tells them all to come in, you know, come as you are. However that, however that is. And the problem is when we read this book, that the Disney God isn't real. Like that, that God that they describe who doesn't care about anything and thinks everybody is great and compulsory heaven for everyone. Like so far as I can tell, it doesn't exist. Like if, there's lots of reasons to believe that this Bible is true, to believe that what we have here is the inspired word of God that's been preserved for us for thousands of years. And it speaks about a very specific God a very specific God reveals himself in this book. And he's not the one who doesn't care. The fact is, he's the one that hates sin. And that's what brought about the plan of salvation. That's what brought about the gospel. So if this Bible is true, and I believe it is, then we have to deal with the God who is real, with the one who it talks about. It's not given us the, the ability to conjure up a different one. Right? People... You often hear the, the formulation of, I mean, the God I serve isn't like that. Well, who is he then? Right? That's, if, if it's not this one, I don't know that I have any evidence at all that that God is real. I think that that's made up, right? That that's an idol in, in their mind. So, what I want us to think about as we move through here, another piece that, that Scott referred to this morning, there are two, right? God hates sin, and he doesn't stop hating it once we're saved, right? Once the gospel has come, once you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the, the, the penalty is, is paid by the righteousness of Christ. God sees you um, in, in a legal sense as justified. You do not have any more sin. But God still hates sin. God still hates. We're going to read through here, and, and again, it's easy for us to read these, I think, and think about Oh, yeah, there's really bad people that do this kind of stuff. But I think if we read it with a little bit of a closer eye, I think, oh, boy. That, uh, it doesn't actually say that this is only the kind of... Well, let's move through here and see if, and see if you agree with me. So, uh, verse 16, this, this, uh, the structure here, there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination, right? So this isn't um, Solomon can't make up his mind or, or God can't decide if it's six or seven or he doesn't know. It's a literary device that was used in the writing of the time to, to draw attention. And, and this number seven often re, uh, represents completeness, completion. And so this, you read this list as essentially a summation of, of describing wickedness. It's not every single thing that would fit in wickedness, um, but it is a representative group of things um, that God hates. And as we quickly work through this list now, uh, don't think about the Adolf Hitlers and the Saddam Husseins. Maybe listen and see if there isn't something that, that God's going to point out that maybe some of these uh, traits snuck back into your life. So, six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Seventeen, haughty eyes. This one we recognize as, as pride, the position of these eyes describes the, the attitude of the heart, a general feeling of being better than people, of being more important, more useful. 
more righteous, bringing more glory to God. This one's even celebrated uh, by our culture. Well, you'll find that many of these are, right? As our culture moves away from God, uh, they celebrate things that God hates. Um, and you'll see this one. We talk about things you deserve. Right? You deserve it. All sorts of advertisements would tell you. You deserve to be treated well. You deserve goodness. You deserve, right? I've kind of been through. That's not actually true. Actually, we all deserve something much, much different than that. Next one. A lying tongue. Another one that we all recognize here, sadly. Our, our world today is awash in lies. From politicians to celebrities to you name it, right? Truth is regularly manipulated to fit whatever the current crisis requires, whatever, whatever people need to get them out of the jam they're in. You even see lying, I would say, extended now to people talking about their own truth, defining their own truth, questioning, questioning basic science, basic biology. Lots and lots and lots of lying. But I would point out here, it doesn't actually say God hates lying when it's done by really bad people. Right? God hates lying. If you, if you find yourself uh, under the sway of, of this world that's making you start to question, man, do we really know what truth is? Do we really, can, can we really know that this is exactly the truth? Um, I, I want to caution you that, that if you are saved, that sin is forgiven. That's, that's the key. It's not going to be unforgiven. But it is possible that if we're letting these things back into our lives, that you will notice that your joyful walk with the Lord is going to be affected. In any, in any relationship with anyone, you can't go out and celebrate the things that the other person hates and think that there won't be some difference, that there won't be some kind of friction, that there won't be some kind of, of challenge in that relationship. Move to the next one. Hands that shed innocent blood. This is probably a little harder for us to wrap our minds around. Something that certainly still happens in our world. Again, if you, all you have to do is look quickly at the news, and you will find all around the world there are there are innocent innocent people in the circumstance. Right? We know that that there are no uh, innocent people from God's perspective, but people who calamity is brought upon by no fault of their own. Another thing to probably think about here is even abortion, right? If there's any, if there's any kind of innocent blood you would ever recognize, it is the, it is the killing of a child before they can do anything. So lots of this going on. But maybe a way to think about this that's a little more applicable to us is maybe maybe the the violent 
angry kind of personality that would exist in this type of, of man. It's someone who is, we're not people that carry out the actual shedding of innocent blood, but do we find in ourselves a spirit of anger, a spirit of rising up in, in wrath against people who would, do, who would do us wrong? That there is a place, there's a place for righteous anger, and that would not be this. But if there's, if there's something in us that we tend toward anger, it's something for us to think about. Next, a heart that devises wicked plans. Again, I, I could have just brought a, a newspaper and we could have looked through it. You don't have to look any further than the news. Uh, men are constantly looking for ways to take advantage of each other, to use anything that they have to get wealth, to get power, to get uh, the things that they think they want. So again, as a piece of application, is this, our hearts think about things like this? Is there things getting even with someone who has wronged you? Thinking about things that other people have that you don't. So it's something that your mind dwells upon, devises plans to deal with that. It is, I have, to, I have to admit, reading through this, there are, there are some of these that sneak in to my life if I'm not vigilant. And so, if, if there are any of those, be convicted. If, if you feel convicted this morning, about these things in your life is a sign that God loves you. It's not a sign that God hates you. Conviction is not a sign that, that God doesn't care and that he hates you and he wishes you were dead. It is a sign that he's moving in your heart to wake you up to these things that, that the world will press into you and he's showing them to you so that you can get them out. Next, when feet that make haste to run to evil, we already talked about all sorts of wickedness. God already hates the evil that, that men do, and they deepen the offense by running after it. Uh, false witness who breathes out lies, another one about the lying tongue. This one's a little different in that it seems to deal specifically with lies that would involve hurt to another person, right? speaking a false witness to bring hurt to another person. I'd say having it appear in the list again should bring out to us the importance in God's eyes of truth-telling. Christian people, we are to be truth-tellers. And then finally, uh, one who sows discord among brothers, echoing uh, verse 14, calls out anyone causing division in the church. The Bible often speaks of the church as God's sons and daughters, speaks of us as brothers and sisters, and so anyone causing strife in his church, whether it's gossip, whether it's, and this can come down to things that, that are different than shedding innocent blood, things that may feel a little more, God, you know, it's, it's not that big a deal if I just tell this other person something that I heard about somebody else. 
God hates one who sows discord among brothers. Period. Right? That doesn't, it doesn't say if you do it really bad or if the thing you did makes it really, makes it something turn out really awful. It says who sows discord. So these are things um, that God hates. So let's close out with some good news here. Wisdom as we think about it, how to apply God's word to our life uh, in a way that brings glory to him. Wisdom calls us to see these tendencies in us. Right? This is a we spend lots of time talking about how bad all sorts of other people are. Um, and it will do nothing for you. It'll probably make you feel worse. God calls us to see these things and turn to God for a new heart. That is the good news we know from Acts 17 that God calls all men to repent. So in this section, right, probably two different audiences, one, one would be the man who does not know Christ, the man who is not forgiven, the man who has not repented, poor woman. No matter how many wicked things any person has done, God extends this offer of salvation to them. Right? This, this end of sudden calamity is for the unrepentant man. Repentance changes that outcome. It changes that permanent outcome. I love the verse in Ezekiel reads, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, first, if there's, if there's anybody here, if there's anybody listening, if you don't know the Lord, calamity is coming. It doesn't mean today, it doesn't mean but it means that if you are a person whose life is defined by wickedness, it will not stand. There is no, there's nowhere for you to hide. There is, there is not a, a God who can overlook it. The perfection of the God who is real requires that you do something about it. And he will. You don't have to do anything else. But come to him today and, and ask for that repentance. And he will change you. He will give you a new heart. So then, for us, those of us who are saved, we say again, while Christ's righteousness has paid the penalty for our sins, this is, we are not talking about, if you are a person who has been saved and God has given you a new heart, you are not perfect. You are not promised to be perfect. Those sins are paid for. I think what wisdom calls us back to is to see that when these behaviors start to slip into our life, when we start to be a little bit like Maybe our friends at school um, who don't have the same kind of calling that we do. It affects our walk with the Lord. It just, it affects, it affects our joy. It affects the way we experience life, right? God doesn't promise that if you come to him, that there will be no trouble, that you will never experience any pain, that everything will be great. It will be skittles and unicorns forever. Skittles and unicorns forever. It just going to take a while. Right? <laughs> once, once we get to heaven, I don't know about Skittles and Unicorns, but it's going to be great. And none of the bad stuff is going to be there. But while we're alive, it's, it's going to be challenging. You live in a world that hates me. And so it's going to be hard. Uh, but we can experience a joy in, in knowing God, in knowing that we are following 
the creator of the universe who has made us to find our greatest joy in following him. So this same wisdom that calls sinners to repent calls believers to press on in holy living through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to call you back to him. So no matter if you are someone who is saved or someone who is not, the call is the same. Come, come to Jesus. Come to him for repentance if you have not. Come back to him for the power to live a holy life, to, to rid your life of these things that God hates, to get rid of all the, any of the barriers between you and your relationship with God. So it's easy for us to think again about, about wicked people. You want to get stuck on the, the negative part of that. There are many of them, but I think the real, the real wisdom that we find here is to take us and tell us to, to bring our lives back to Christ. The great news of the gospel is that by the blood of Christ, we can be free both of the penalty and of the power of these sins that God hates. So why don't you bow with me? Father, we are grateful that you stoop to speak to us, that you are a God who is perfect, who is outside of a world that is unimaginably large and complex. We cannot even hardly understand it. And you say, I hold all of this in my hand, and yet I know you. I know who you are. I know each one of you. I know every hair on your head. I know what bothers you. I know the things that you don't like. I know how you feel. I know what happened yesterday. You care. You love us. And so I pray, again, that you'd move in, in the hearts of each one of us. Draw us back to you. Help us to see the great beauty of a relationship with you. To see the fulfillment of it. To realize that this is what we were made for. And we thank you for speaking to us. And you'd bless us as we dismiss here and through the rest of our day and week. And ask this prayer in Jesus' name. You are dismissed.